0: Glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. We're making our way through this book, and it seems like every chapter ends on a cliffhanger. This one will be no exception. Esther 4. Well, I just want you to imagine for a moment that you're living in the suburbs of a nice city with your family. Maybe you're living in an average-sized home that is well-kept. Each morning, you get up like all your neighbors and you go to work. You're a law-abiding citizen. You pay your taxes. You don't try to cheat your neighbors or steal from them. And actually, you believe that's wrong because you fear God. You're part of a small religious minority in your city. But you practice your religion quietly. You're passing on the teachings of your religion to your children. You're you're trying to live out what you believe is right. In other words, you're just living a quiet life. You're enjoying the blessings God has given you, and for the most part, life is sweet. Sure, you have your troubles like everyone else, but you sense God's blessing on your life. And then one evening, as you're getting ready for bed... You just pull out your phone and you start reading the news and the opening headline is that the president has issued a decree backed by the full support of the Senate and the Congress to totally annihilate, kill, and destroy all who follow your religion. That would include you, your wife, your kids, and all your loved ones. And a date has been fixed on the calendar for this to take place exactly 11 months from now. What are you going to do? Can you imagine being in a trial like that? That sounds a little far fetched, maybe, right? And yet, that is exactly the hardship facing Mordecai, Esther, and the rest of the Jews as we turn to chapter 4. They weren't threatened with slavery. But extinction. A law had been issued to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children. I, I would safely say this that troubles don't get any worse than this. And I, I would imagine that most of us, maybe none of us, have ever been in a trial this severe. See, what's going on here is the worst case scenario. So if God can deliver Mordecai and Esther and the Jews through this great ordeal that is far worse than anything that any of us have ever gone through then he can deliver you through whatever you're going through today. That's the hope. He can deliver you whatever you're going through. It's not as bad as this. And so this morning we want to look at trusting God through your troubles. Trusting God through your troubles. I've subtitled this, How God Uses Trials in Your Life. How God is going to use trials in your life. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach from the king's eunuchs whom the king had appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I haven't been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. What a. Passage, right? Well, I think for us to understand what's going on here, we need to know what happened in chapter 3. How did the Jews get into this predicament where they were facing complete destruction? Well, we saw last time that King Ahasuerus had promoted this guy Haman to the highest place in his kingdom, second only to the king. And the king passed this command that everyone who uh, Haman passed by was to bow down to him and show him respect when he walked by. But Mordecai, a Jew, wouldn't do that. Which made Haman furious, and he was determined to do something about it. But when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of King Ahasuerus. So, so the question was, well, why would one man's disrespect move Haman to destroy all the Jews? And the answer to that is Haman was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. And the Jews were descendants of Jacob. And so this, that conflict between Jacob and Esau continued down through the centuries through their descendants. And we saw this when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, right? It was the Amalekites who attacked Israel. And then hundreds of years later, God told King Saul to wipe out Amalek. And it was the prophet Samuel who hewed King Agag to pieces. Haman was a descendant of King Agag. And now... The tables have turned. And he's going to get his revenge. And so what takes place in chapter 3, as we saw last, time, really is a struggle between the people of God and the enemies of God. It's a battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And ultimately, this is a conflict between God and the devil. And you and I are in this conflict. We're part of this spiritual warfare. Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians six. Our struggles not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but he says it's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so, our, ultimately, our battle is not against people, but the devil uses people like Haman. Behind every Haman, there's someone more sinister who hates God and hates His Christ. But when you read the Bible, you see something that the outcome of this war has already been determined. Jesus wins. Praise the Lord. So if you're in Christ, you're on the winning side. The Bible tells us that he crushes the devil and he throws him into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's going to happen at the end and so if you're in Christ you're on the winning side but that doesn't mean you're immune from the battle because in this life you're going to experience all kinds of troubles and that's what we see happening here to God's people in the book of Esther and in chapter 4 we're going to see how God uses these troubles in our life but Haman he he came up with this devilish plan to destroy all the Jews he won the king's favor through deception and bribery and that resulted in him having the authority to pass a law that could not be revoked, that was carried out swiftly. And so chapter 3 ends with Haman having a victory toast. Because he sees his plan as foolproof. He's just waiting for it to happen. So this clearly was a dark day for the Jews. Things could not get worse. And, and the question that we need to ask ourselves and, and as we go through this, is we need to think about this question. Where's God? Where's God in all this? And if we understand the sovereignty of God properly, we know God's not on vacation when all this is going on. No, actually what we know from the, about the sovereignty of God is this. God's allowing Haman's plan to succeed. God is the one who's allowed Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to be exalted. God put his enemy in a place, this exalted position, where he's planning to harm his children. Why would God do that? I mean, would you do that? Would you allow someone who was trying to hurt your children, would you allow them to prosper if... You could stop them? No, you wouldn't do that. So why would God do this? How are we to explain this? Well, the theme of chapter 3 and 4 is God allows evil up to a certain point and uses it to bring about good. And only a wise and powerful God could do this. And that's what we got to see about our God. When you're going through troubles... What God wants you to see is his majesty and his greatness so you actually trust him. You trust him in your troubles. That's what we're trying to see here. The wrath of man will praise God. You see, God allows this evil so that he might show with what ease he can remove his enemies and thwart their plans. And so God allows troubles, and he's going to use those troubles to reveal his glory so that you will praise his wisdom and his power and his compassion and his care for you. See, what we need to consider uh, what God is doing in this book, we need to consider this. Listen, here's what God does in this book. Without ever doing a single miracle, he brings his people to the brink of ruin easily delivers them and casts their enemies into the abyss that's our God that's how awesome he is there's no one like him so really the ultimate purpose of our trials is the glory of God because in your troubles he's not far away your difficulties become an opportunity to trust God to trust his wisdom to trust his power So let's look at this. First, to to trust God through your troubles, know this, know this. God uses trials to reveal your need of Him. Oh yes. God is going to use trials to reveal your need of Him to show you how you're not self-sufficient. Look at verse 1 again. When Mordecai learned all that had been done. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Boy, it's really clear God got the attention of his people. All he had to do was have one single law pass and he's got the attention of all his people. Wow. In just a moment. You know what? If you were never in trouble, you know what you would do? You would forget God. You just forget God. In Psalm 73, Asaph, he he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he said this, there's no pains in their death. They're not in trouble as other men. So he's looking at the wicked and he's watching them prosper. Their life was blessed, even though they're arrogant and wicked and they oppress others, and yet they're always at ease. They're increasing in wealth. But you know what you need to realize? Because... Of that because they were just their life was going great while they're living wicked lives, they never sought God. They never sought God. Their, their life of ease in the midst of their wickedness actually was a judgment of God because they never thought about God until they met Him face to face. Too late then. So, Asaph, he finally realizes their end right you read psalm 73 he he gets to the place where he walks into the temple and he realizes their end well you contrast psalm 73 with psalm 107 and you read psalm 107 and god purposely puts these various people these people in various troubles where their only recourse is to cry out to god for deliverance so these people are traveling to the desert, they're, they're fainting along the way, they're going to die, and they cry out to God, and God directs them to a city where they, they get food and water. Or these other people, they're in bondage because of their sin, they're in misery, they're in chains, they're at the point of death, and they cry out to God, and God delivers them. These sailors, they get in this ship, and they get in this horrific storm, and they cry out to God, and God delivers them. You see, God brings you through difficulties so that you will cry out to him and watch how easily he delivers you. That's the point. So it's the mercy of God to put you through troubles because what it does is it reveals you need God. And so maybe you're at that place today. You're in some kind of difficulty where where you're crying out to God. That's a good place to play. So here's Mordecai. He he learns of all that had been decreed he, against his people. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he's going around wailing loudly and bitterly. And, and that picture of tearing your clothes, it was a sign of distress. And sackcloth and ashes was an outward sign of this inward anguish of soul. It was a sign of humility and mourning. And Mordecai is put in this situation where he has nothing he can do but depend on God. There's no escape. A death sentence has been passed. And it's hanging over his head. Oh, friend, you need to realize something. You have a death sentence over your head. I don't know if you realize that. We have a death sentence over our head. Because of your sin... The wrath of God abides on you. And there's no escaping that. Oh, do you sense that dread? And and if the Spirit of God starts helping you feel the weight of your sins, you know what you'll do? You'll, as it were, rent your clothes. You'll put on sackcloth and ashes. You'll humble yourself and seek God who has graciously provided the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Mordecai, he wailed loudly and bitterly. That word means to cry out. He was crying out for help, and he went as far as the king's gate. Maybe he was seeking mercy from the king. Oh, but no one can enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So Mordecai has no access to the king, the one who could help him. What a a picture of many people today. They're they're going through horrific things and troubles and heartaches, and they cry out to God, but they're not clothed properly. They're not clothed properly. So God doesn't listen to them. They don't have access to God. Listen, the only way you have access to God is if you're clothed properly, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You, You can't go to God on your own merits. You have no access to God with your good works. God sees all your righteous deeds as a filthy garment. That's how he sees it, because it's polluted with sin. You can only go to the Father through the Son. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. No access to God but through Christ. That's it. And the reason why you can go through Christ is because he lived a perfect life, a righteous life. He came to die in your place. He came to die for your sins. So when Jesus was dying on the cross, he wasn't dying for his sins. He didn't have any. He's dying for your sins. And if you trust in Christ, then your sins get put on Christ. And his righteousness gets put on you. So you have access to the Father. Because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not your own merit. See, what troubles reveal to us is that we need God. That's what they reveal. And He's more than willing to come to your aid when you come to Him through Christ. I love what Scripture says. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So he knows what you're going through. He understands your temptations, your struggles. And you can go to, to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Praise God for that. And so when the decree went out into every province, the Jews responded by mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing, and many of them lay on sackcloth and ashes. So I kind of just imagine, right, you're just, you know, these Jews, right? they're just living normal lives, right? They're They're going to work every day, they're buying and they're selling things, they're enjoying the pleasures of life, and then God all of a sudden just brings this calamity on them. And he gets their attention. And maybe some of them were not as serious about their walk with God as they should have been. Maybe they were distracted by the things of the world. They had gotten worldly and now God's got their attention. Or maybe there were some of them who were just simply going through the motions. They claimed to be followers of God, but it was all external. And they were not really serious about God. And God's using this to help them evaluate do you really know me? Or maybe there were some of them who were zealously living for God and God is using this to draw them even closer to Him. But whatever the situation they were living in, God got their attention. God got their attention. Where their only recourse was to humble themselves and cry out to God. And so God's going to use troubles in your life to get you focused back on God and remind you of how much you need God. God put these people in a dire situation. They they were fasting and weeping and lamenting and mourning. And the implication here is that they were crying out to God for deliverance. Have you cried out to God lately? They, They gave up their food because of their plight. I mean, you can tell when God gets someone's attention, they don't feel like eating. There there was an urgency to seek God in prayer. The the Jews gave up the comforts of their beds to lay on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was a very coarse material. It was uncomfortable to wear. And so the Jews were willing to give up some of their comforts to show God how much they needed Him. See, what was desperately needed was not the comforts God gives, but God Himself. Because your comforts can't save you. Only God can save you. And so sometimes God will remind you of that. What what, what's more important? The gifts God gives you are the giver of those gifts. And so God will have you go through some troubles to remind you what is most precious is not the things you own. Those things are gonna perish. They can't deliver you, they can't sustain you through your troubles. They can't comfort you in your grief. What is most precious is Jesus Christ. That is what's most precious. And if you have Christ, you have the riches of all gifts. For in, in him are unsearchable riches. Beloved, Jesus Christ is your chief good. And if you have Christ, you have everything. And so God will bring trials to remind you that you need him. And dependence on God is good. It's good. It's a good place to be in. And so here, here's the, this really is the low point for the Jews in this book. And never before since the events surrounding the exodus have the Jews been in so much danger. There's fasting, weeping, mourning, lamenting. There's no hope unless God sends a deliverer. And so God uses trials to show us how much we need him. Second, God uses trials to test your faith. God is going to use trials to prove your faith. In the rest of the chapter, we, have this, we see these interactions between Esther and Mordecai, though they never talk face to face. They're always going through somebody. And notice verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered her to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. See, God will have you go through trials, fiery trials, to test your faith, to reveal your character. Mordecai's in the fire. And... The oven has been turned up and he feels the heat. And he may have figured out that this calamity facing all of the Jews was connected to him, not bowing to Haman. Now, he wasn't responsible for Haman's wickedness. But, I mean, I I, I would imagine he could feel the weight of his actions. Trials are like being in a furnace. The Bible describes them as fiery. I, I used to work uh, at an electrical motor shop, and we would take these big old motors, and we would clean them up, and you know, really clean them good, and then we'd wash them down, and then we'd stick them in an oven. Well, these, these things were huge. They were on pallets, and so the oven was actually a room, kept it at about 150 degrees, and you would have to push this motor in there so it would dry out overnight, but you couldn't stay in there long. Because even the air would would burn your lungs. Well, that's what trials are like. They're like a fiery furnace. And sometimes God just keeps you in there. The heat is on. Peter calls them fiery ordeals. And God uses these to test your faith, to grow your character. They they show your faith and dependence upon God, or they show your lack of faith. And your character also comes out in trials, right? It shows where you may have flaws and where you need to change. Because sometimes what trials do is they reveal your anger. You're, you're angry at God for having you go through this. Or sometimes trials reveal your fear. You're afraid of a person, you're afraid of a situation instead of fearing God. Or maybe it's despair. You just lose hope. And so what these trials do, what God does through them is he reveals where where you need to change and trust him. And so what we're going to see here is how God tests both Mordecai's and Esther's faith through this trial. In this first interaction, what we see is Mordecai challenging Esther's faith. When Esther heard Mordecai was at the gate, clothed in sackcloth and weeping and wailing, she's wondering what's going on. It perplexed her that her stepfather is acting like this, and she wondered what it meant. So she sends garments to clothe him, but he refused right, to dress nicely when his soul was filled with grief. And so she summons one of her eunuchs to go find out what's happening because Esther's confined to the palace. She doesn't know that this about this edict and how it was issued by her husband. And so Mordecai explains to Hathak, the decree against the Jews. They're doomed to destruction, to perish. And Mordecai gives a copy of the edict to give to Esther so she could read it for herself. And it's interesting, verse 7 and in verse 8, twice, Mordecai mentions the destruction of the Jews. He wants Esther to know how serious this is. And so he puts a copy of the edict into her hands to help her see The imminent danger they're in. And then he commands her, you need to go to the king and implore his favor for your people. They're your people. And what we see here really is this, this trial proving Mordecai's faith. I mean, he heard the edict. And when he heard that, I mean, man, he could have just packed his bags and took the next flight out of Baghdad. I mean, he had 11 months to get as far away as he wanted to. But he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of a plan to save his people. And his response, I think, helps us see how we should respond. Remember, the the book of Esther is about the providence of God. God will intervene for his people. But his providence doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. Because God uses means, he uses people like us to accomplish his plans. And the Lord will put you in a place, in a situation where you know you need to act. Just like Esther was put in this situation, you know you need to act. Maybe it's, maybe it's in the workplace. Something happens and God, you know God wants you to say something. God wants you to do something. Or maybe it's with a friend. Or as a parent. Or as a dis- discipler. You, you know God wants you to say something to your child. You know God wants you to say something to your disciple. You, God has put you in that place. Sometimes, though, God puts you in a place to encourage others to act. That other person is in that place. That that place where they can have an impact. And God uses you to encourage them. Like we see Mordecai doing here with Esther. And so sometimes you'll be discipling someone and you'll go, you you need to correct your son. Because I see this. And God will put you in a place to encourage the person in that place of authority that God put them to do something. That takes courage too, right? Esther needed to trust God and act. She was put in that place. Now, in the second interaction between Esther and Mordecai, we see Esther's response to this trial. Her initial response is fear. You see, there's one small problem with Mordecai's plan. Look at verse 9. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Mordecai, there's a problem with your little plan here. And that tiny little problem is this could cost me my life. There's a law to protect the king. No one can come into the king's inner court unless he's been summoned. That included the queen. A person had to be called to come before the king. It's invitation only. And so if if a person came before the king who was not summoned, they had one law. Put him to death. You could see the guys uh, standing there guarding the king with their swords, ready to chop off someone's head. However, there was an exception clause. If the king decided to show you favor, he would allow you to live. Wow, I don't think that law was tested too often. Think about how different this is from our king. Our king's not like this, is he? He gives you an open summons. Amen? An open summons. He invites you to come into his presence so that you can enjoy him. He delights in the prayer of the upright. He wants to hear from you. And you can go before his throne anytime you want. God's always ready there to help you, to take care of you, especially in times of trouble. And so Esther, she reports back to Mordecai I haven't been summoned to the king in 30 days. 30 days. She hasn't seen her husband. So what does she think? I'm no longer in favor. Some other concubine is in favor. I'm not in favor. The king's already got rid of one queen. So if she's no longer in favor, what's going to happen if she shows up unannounced in his presence? It could cost her her life. So now Esther finds herself in the midst of this fiery trial as well. Her faith is being tested. Even the queen couldn't escape this. She who lived in luxury with the finest things the world had to offer found herself facing destruction. I mean, she had to be shocked when she found out this decree had been, that had been issued by her husband, of all people. Sometimes you may think you're safe from certain trials, but you're not. They will come. Trials are coming. If you're not in a trial right now, they're coming. I'm not a prophet, but I know they're coming. Because the Bible tells us that. The question is, will you be ready? We're going to see here how Mordecai and Esther respond to this trial. I can guarantee you they were people who were ready for this the way they respond revealed that they trusted in their god they had a big view of god they had faith in god well how do you get that well you you study your bible and you learn about your god i mean we have way more promises than they have right And so if you want to be ready for the trials that God is bringing you, you've got to be a man or woman of the Bible so you can learn about your God and you learn about his power and his majesty and his greatness and his compassion and his kindness toward his people that he's displayed so beautifully by giving him, giving you and I his son. I mean, what more could he give? He gave you Christ. And if you have Christ, you have everything. And so as you remind yourself, as you're daily in the Word of God, and you're studying the Word of God, and you're seeing the the, the wonders of God through Christ, and, and you know all the blessings that you have from Christ, and you're reading about the promises of God, well, when trials come, then you can go, well, okay, I can trust this God. He's already given me Christ. This is why it's so crucial to be a man or woman of the word. So Esther's initial response here we see is fear. She's afraid for her life. She wants to be excused. Hey, let's, uh, let's figure out all of her options first. There's got to be a better solution to this problem. Now what I love about that is she's the heroine of this book, remember? Oh, but she's made up of the same stuff we are. There's hope for you. God can use you. Amen? And so she's looking at the difficulties instead of seeing what God can do. And yet she's the kind of person God uses. So let me ask you, when you're facing troubles, what's your first reaction? Fear or faith? Is your, is your first reaction confusion or trust? Trust. Is it anger or is it confidence in God? Is it timidity or courage? See, what's your response? And you can look through the Bible, you can see examples of this, right? I think of David and Goliath. David is just a little shepherd guy, you know, he comes in. Goliath gets out there. And everybody saw his stature. And everybody was afraid. And everybody fled. Right, because they're looking at the man. And David comes and goes, what's going to happen to the person who kills this uncircumcised Philistine who's taunting the armies of the living God? See where his focus is? It's on God. God's bigger than this guy. He responded with courage. Why? He's looking at God. God's bigger than Goliath. What, What about you? What about... Your troubles, is God bigger than the person who's oppressing you? Is God bigger than that person? Is he bigger than your boss, your co worker, your spouse, whoever it happens to be that's maligning you, slandering you, oppressing you? Is God bigger than your trouble? Is he bigger than the trouble you're in? Your financial troubles, I don't know what they are, your, your health issue? your unemployment. See, where are you looking? Are you looking at the problem or are you looking at God who's greater than the problem? See, see, fear, it really is a distrust in God. That's what fear really is. It dishonors God because you're not believing that He can help you. You're overwhelmed by your circumstance instead of trusting in the greatness of God. I would say that Esther's faint-heartedness was a natural reaction to this challenging situation. It wasn't a spiritual reaction. She's looking at the trial from her perspective, right? The king hasn't called me in 30 days. I don't have, that must mean I don't have his favor anymore. So if I show up unannounced, that's going to be the end of me. That will produce fear if that's how your thinking goes. See, when you're in trouble, God wants you to see things from his perspective. He wants you to have faith in his person, faith in his promises. And you've got to remind yourself of the greatness of God. Remind yourself that God is for you. And when you do, you won't be timid. You'll be as bold as a lion. Well, you can respond that way only when your focus is on God. The one who can do exceedingly, abundantly beyond what you can ask or think. And so you can trust God through your troubles when you know that he's using them to test and prove your faith. And then third, third thing we want to see here is God uses trials to strengthen your faith so you respond. He uses trials to strengthen your faith so you respond. And let's see how Mordecai responds to Esther's fear. Look at verse 13. When Mordecai told them... Excuse me. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place... And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? We see Mordecai's faith here faith in God's sovereignty. And three things are revealed. First thing was this he believed Esther wasn't immune from this trial. That's the first thing he believed. You're not going to escape death in the king's palace. It's going to catch up to you there if you remain silent. He says, you and your father's house will perish. So Mordecai wanted her to see that she couldn't escape her way out of this. So deal with it, Esther. You're going to have to deal with it. Oh, how many times has God sent trials that we don't want to have to deal with? I'm guilty of that. We just ignore things, hoping they'll go away, thinking they won't affect us, but they eventually catch up to us. Will you ignore your son's need of correction again? Will you you just keep putting that off? And then when he's 18, you wonder why you have such a rebellious son. It's going to catch up to you. So we go through trials like that. We just ignore things. Will, will you ignore that relational conflict? You got this relational conflict, you know God wants you to deal with it, but, you know, just going to, well, I hope it'll go away. And, and they never go away, they just get worse. And sometimes what we need is a faithful friend to remind us, you're not immune from this trial. It's going to catch up to you sooner or later, and if it's later, it's going to be worse, so deal with it now. So Mordecai tells her, you're not going to escape this. Second thing we see about his faith here, he believed the Jews would be delivered. Did you catch that? Verse 14, he says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. So Esther, even if you remain quiet and you choose not to say anything, God's still going to deliver his people. Now, why did he believe that? Because he had had the Bible, right? He had part of the Bible. He didn't have the New Testament yet, some of the prophets. But he had a lot of the Bible. He had the Psalms. He had everything written before Esther. And he could see God is a covenant-keeping God. And God will deliver his people. He made a covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to Israel. He's a covenant-keeping God. He won't abandon you. You're his beloved, and he will provide and protect you. He made a promise to deliver his people through Abraham, through David, and God will keep his word. So if you don't act, deliverance will come from someone else. And I love that confidence, don't you? Don't you need people like that in your life to just remind you of God and his promises and what he's going to do? He was totally confident God would deliver his people because God has a track record. And here's what's interesting. When you read the Bible, God delivers his people through people. He raises up people like Moses and Joshua and David. And then the greatest deliverer, Christ himself. Right? He uses people. So if Esther's not willing to be used, God's going to use someone See, this trial has proved Mordecai's faith. That's the purpose of trials. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, writes these words. "Blessed, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, And will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, praise God for the blessings. Amen? All that because of Christ. And then he adds these words. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love the way Peter does this. He tells you about what God did for you. And specifically what God did for you in Christ. And then he tells you the promises of God. He's going to keep you. You have an inheritance you're going to receive. And then he says, and by the way, you're going to go through some troubles. Fiery trials. Trials that will prove your faith. Oh, but remember God. Don't forget God. Who's done all these wonderful things for you in Christ? Don't forget the promises of God that you have in Christ. Don't forget those things. Because that's what's going to enable you to stand through the trials, through the fire. These trials reveal if you really believe. And so when trials come, what do you do? Do you cry out to God? That's good. They're designed to get you to cry out to him. Oh, but what if God delays? What if God decides to keep you in that trial for a long time? What then? Will you just sell them out? That's what some people do. Because their faith is not real. Or where you'll cling to God as your only hope. And that's what other people do when their faith is real, right? They just cling to God and God sustains them through that fiery trial. The Christian, like Mordecai, clings to the promises of God. But we have better promises than Mordecai. God gave us his son. And we know he won't abandon us, he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He is going to provide the way of escape. God is working all things together for good to those who love God. See, those are the promises we have he didn't have. The third thing we see about Mordecai's faith is that he believed God put Esther in this position to savor people. Look at what he says at the end of verse 14. Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Who knows? God knows. God knows. Because God put her in this position to save her people. So the whole purpose of Esther attaining royalty, the whole purpose of Esther becoming queen, is so God could save his people through her. And the only way Esther could become queen was if God had removed the previous queen. And the only way Esther could become queen if God made her beautiful of form and face. And the only way God could make her, she could become queen is God gave her favor with Haggai who was in charge of all the harem. And the only way she could become queen is if the king had favor with Esther. Who knows whether you've attained royalty for such a time as this. Well, God knows, because God did it. Long before there was any evil planned against his people, God had already put in place how he would deliver them. And Esther was part of that plan. And Mordecai now sees that clearly. God puts you in this position to save our people. And beloved, God will do this with you. He he will give you favor. He's going to put you in a a place of influence. And then sometime down the road, God's going to use you in that place for his glory. Because he has good works that he's planned out for you to walk in. So he's going to put you in strategic places where he's going to use you for his glory. He'll make it evident why he has left you in that place. But But there's a warning here that we must heed. If Esther remains silent... If she decided she didn't want to be used of God, God's still going to deliver the Jews. But Esther and her father's house would perish. So God will put you in places to use you to advance his purposes, but if you refuse, God may remove you and just use someone else. And so we need to be sober and ask God to use us where he has us. Act in faith. See, believing God wants to use you wherever he has you for the cause of Christ. Well, in the third interaction, we see Esther's faith. Look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So after hearing what Mordecai said and realizing he was right, God raised her up for such a time as this, she knew what she needed to do. But what we see here, instead of going straight to the king to ask for his favor, she goes to the true king to seek his favor. Because the purpose of fasting was to spend time with God in prayer. And even though the text never mentions God's name, clearly that's her intent here. She's seeking God's favor. Because without God's favor, all is lost. And what we see here is Esther is a woman of faith. Because she knew something. If I'm going to have favor with an earthly king, it it would only happen because my heavenly king gave me favor. And so she fasted to seek God's favor. She wasn't going to eat or drink for three days. Probably had no appetite, right? She's looking death squarely in the face. So instead of eating, she's on her knees beseeching the throne of grace for mercy and grace to help in time of need. Her sole focus is on God seeking His favor. And she wisely also recruits others to fast and pray with her, all the Jews in Susa. There are times when God's people need to come together and fast and pray for God's favor. There, There should be times where we're so concerned for His name that we'll set aside a meal or two And pray for God to move. We're going to to spend a week next month. During missions month. Having a week of prayer. And I hope you can join us. We're going to do it at 6.30 in the morning. 6.30 to 7.00 every morning. And then culminate it on Saturday. With a time of prayer. What we see here. Is Esther's incredible faith. Because she's willing. To give up her life. If that meant. Saving her people. So after she spends three days seeking God's favor, she plans to go in before the king, which is not according to law, and she says, if I perish, I perish. Those are words of faith. I mean, just think of what she went through those three days, right? The anguish of soul as she's facing imminent death. Think of how she must have prayed. I mean, it wasn't casual prayer, I can guarantee you that. No, it's supplication. Praying maybe that God would work this out another way. Praying God would grant her favor before the king. Praying for wisdom, what to say to him. Remember, Haman, the guy who wrote the law, is the king's best friend. Why would the king listen to Esther? He's got many other women. He's only got one best friend. So she needed God's favor if she was going to succeed. And really, this, this, her, her faith was proven by this trial. It was genuine. She's a hero of the faith. And I love that because she's, it's very encouraging because she was a woman. She, she wasn't a leader of her home. She couldn't be that. She wasn't a, a, a leader in her religion. She couldn't do that. God reserved her She's an orphan. And God raised, yet God raised up this woman to save her people. That should encourage us. Amen? God's not restrained by gender. He's not restrained by circumstances. If you're available, God will use you. Praise God, right? He wants to use all of us. God used the Esther's of this world, the Mordecai's of this world, ordinary people to do his mighty works. The question is are you available? Are you serving the Lord in the places that he has you? Are you serving in your home? Are you serving at work? Are you serving at school? Are you serving in the church? Are you serving in the places where God has you? Are you being faithful in those places? Be faithful in the little things. God will give you more. See, Esther's willingness to give up her life for her people actually pictures what Jesus did for us, doesn't it? Jesus also spent time in prayer before he went to the cross. It was a time of agony of soul where he sweat drops of blood as he considered facing the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And he even asked the Father to do it a different way. Remember, if it was possible, but not my will, yours be done. And Christ was determined to go to the cross to drink down the full wrath of God to pay the penalty for your sin. No other Savior like Christ. He willingly gave up his life for you. He did perish. Oh, do you believe in this one? Do you believe in this one? Eternal life only through Christ. Access to God only through Christ. Amazing blessings only through Christ. So here we see how God uses trials to get our attention back where they should be. On Him. Life's been going too good. I need a few trials in my life to get my attention back on God. Nobody wishes for that, but that's what happens. He uses troubles to teach us to be humble and dependent on Him. He uses them to prove and refine our faith. He uses them to teach us to act in faith. And when you do that, you'll see his power and his glory more clearly and he'll be more highly exalted. Oh, beloved, you're going to face trials in this life, some more severe than others. And what's going to prepare you to stand firm is what you believe about God. That's what's going to help you stand firm. How great is your God? How glorious is your God? How good is your God? How compassionate is your God? Oh, beloved, you you find out about your God when you study this book. Study this book. Learn about your God. Because trials are coming. Troubles are coming. But he can enable you to stand firm. Because he's great. Amen? Uh, let's stand together, let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for your people, because this chapter ends, and we don't know the outcome. We just know they're ready to respond in faith. The outcome could be bad. And Lord, your people are going through trials right now, and they don't know the outcome. They don't know the outcome. Lord, help them to trust you by faith. Lord, you're going to see them through whatever you bring them through. And you're going to use that in their lives to exalt your name through them to other people. Oh, Lord, teach us to trust you. You are worthy to be praised, worthy to be honored. You're faithful and true. Lord, when Jesus returns, that's what he has written on him, faithful and true. That's who you are. And so we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.